Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about BetOnline.ag. BetOnline Sportsbook has all of your props, odds, promos, and parlays for the 2023 NBA Finals. Use our promo code BLEAVE. That's B-L-E-A-V to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with the link in the description to this episode. Bet online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. And podcasts aren't live. That's the whole purpose of podcasts. You can listen however and whenever it is that you so choose. And we appreciate that you have decided to stop in however and whenever it is that you may be listening. It is a fantabulous Wednesday, June 7th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count, but whenever you're stopping in, we appreciate that you've decided to come in, whether it's June 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, however and whenever it is. Thanks for listening to the Take It Easy podcast. Five-star reviews, downloads, all greatly appreciated wherever you are listening to this here fine podcast. We've got a great show coming at you today. We are going to talk about Monty Williams going from the Phoenix Suns to the Detroit Pistons and setting an all-time NBA record for the richest coaching contract. He's making double what the fourth highest paid coach in the NBA is making. And that fourth highest paid coach in the NBA right now is Tyron Lue. And Tyron Lue is about to get a giant extension from Steve Ballmer sometime soon based on what Monty Williams is now making as head coach of the Detroit Pistons. There's an interesting phenomenon. We're going to break it down here today on the show. We're backlogged on some topics, so I think this is a good place to fit in the Monty Williams conversation just before Game 3 of the NBA Finals between the Nuggets and the Heat tomorrow, according to my count. Speaking of being backlogged on topics, we have gone far too long without journeying into our Star Wars universe known as Major League Baseball because there is a really interesting storyline going on out in Texas right now. And we're going to talk about that first and foremost here on the podcast. And since we're headed to our Star Wars Baseball universe, there's only one way to set the mood, and that is with our Star Wars Episode Five: The Dodger Empire Strikes back video episode 5 the dodger empire strikes back after five days of battles 
a perfect 13 innings from the bullpen fleet, and help from a rally goose. Captain Juan Soto and the San Diego Resistance blew up the Holy Dodger Empire's 111-win Death Star, restoring a balance to the Force. After their incredible victory, the Resistance discovers they still have much to learn after a journey to the Dagobah system and a visit to Master Harper on the swamp planet known as Philadelphia. Meanwhile, the Holy Dodger Empire grows in wealth, pillaging the backs of Diamond and Purple Rockies once more for resources. The Empire has removed Captains Trey and Justin Turner, while banishing Cody Bellinger to the north side. Master Cohen and his Met Army of Queens continue spending their unprecedented resources in an attempt to maintain control of their Empire State along the eastern seaboard. In addition, Master Cohen and his Met Army of Queens, along with the Holy Dodger Empire, prepare themselves for the impending arrival of Master Otani, the fabled Jedi Knight from Anaheim, who legend says has the ability to master and control both sides of the Force. Despite their successes, the Resistance is losing resources and ground, trying to compete with the tyranny of the Holy Dodger Empire. They've fled to the backs of Diamond in order to re-coordinate their efforts for the following season. In their time of need, Captain Juan Soto enlists help from a former Resistance ally, Fernando Calrissian, also known as El Nino. The Resistance also pays a hefty price for Xander Bogart's defection from the once great Boston Empire. With the help of Captain Soto, the return of El Nino, Xander the Carpenter, Joe Musgrove, Jedi Master Manny Machado, and Supreme Closer Lord Hader, the Resistance knows this season will be their best chance to dismantle the Holy Dodger Empire once and for all. All right, we have journeyed to a galaxy far, far away. Just, by the way, since the last time we checked in here on the Major League Baseball Star Wars universe going on, because right now that uh, that resistance in San Diego ain't doing so hot. They're sitting two games below 500 behind the Giants. Ugh, it's uh it's a tough time for the resistance as was the case in the Empire Strikes Back though. So, once we get to the playoffs, it'll hopefully be the 6th Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi. Hopefully we get The Last Jedi coming up here and uh hopefully it turns out into something great at the end of it all, but it ain't looking great for the uh for the Empire, for the resistance right now. The Empire, the Holy Dodger Empire has been caught by those backs of diamond. Those impressive, impressive backs of diamond who had their resources pillaged, pillaged, I say, by the Holy Dodger Empire. Those backs of diamond have retooled and put together one hell of a team. By the way, Lourdes Gordiel Jr., the 
left fielder for the Arizona Diamondbacks, who they absolutely stole from the Toronto Blue Jays. What happens when you're the backs of Diamond and your franchise has been pillaged? Well, you go to the Toronto Blue Jays and get a steal by trading for Lourdes Gurriel Jr. last offseason. He had a 16-game hitting streak going on for the Diamondbacks. Cattell Marte, who... They got in a a deal with the Seattle Mariners years and years ago. Cattell Marte has been through some dark years with the Arizona Diamondbacks, and he's been compensated well for it. I don't want to pretend like it's been awful for him. He got a $76 million contract with the Diamondbacks, a five-year deal averaging out about $15 million plus a year. Uh, He's now in his sixth season with the Diamondbacks, 17, 18, 19, no, seventh season with the Diamondbacks. This is Cattell Marte's seventh season with the Arizona Diamondbacks, and uh, he was traded originally in a deal that had a bunch of former All-Stars, Gene Segura, Tajon Walker, who now pitches for the New York Mets, and as kind of a throw-in piece to that trade, Cattell Marte has very quietly become the best player who was acquired in that trade. He's been the one piece that has stuck through the rebuild for the Diamondbacks, and he is showing his worth this year as Arizona, out of nowhere, comes back to catch the Arizona. Or comes back, the backs of Diamond have stormed back and. They have caught the Holy Dodger Empire, at least early in the season. We'll see if the Holy Dodger Empire pillages them once again. But to start this season, it's been an incredible run for those backs of diamond out there in Arizona. They are, as of Sunday, they caught the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Dodgers passed them again, but they caught them. 35 and 24 was the number. They caught the Dodger Empire. It's pretty incredible. And uh, here they are, the backs of diamond at first place while the lowly resistance tries to find their place in the galaxy as uh the empire strikes back movie continues on i don't know where the texas rangers fit into this whole star wars saga because they are an american league team the american league kind of exists on the periphery of this star wars universe uh we acknowledge the the eastern seaboard with the new york mets and the center the uh the Royal Cardinals, who are struggling in the Central, the Mill of Milwaukee is part of this game, but we don't. Uh, the the Philadelphia Phillies are the Swamp Planet uh, from the second movie, and Bryce Harper is Yoda. Like the National League kind of exists in the Star Wars world, but the American League kind of exists on the periphery of this galaxy. And I just wanted to talk about the Texas Rangers today because the Texas Rangers have been this incredibly interesting story in the first part of baseball season because last year and and for the past couple years when we get into the baseball universe, we have talked consistently about how baseball is a sport of haves and have-nots because of revenue-sharing systems in the sport, because of regional television contracts, because of disparities in wealth among ownership groups. Baseball is a sport, and because 12 teams now make the playoffs in baseball across a 162-game season, baseball is a sport where you can basically buy yourself a certain number of wins. You can expect that if you spend X amount of money and aren't the Anaheim Angels, if you spend X amount of money, you can win X number of games. It's about $200 million can guarantee you 
80 wins or 85 wins pretty much every year. And the Major League Baseball payroll is really interesting in the fact that the Texas Rangers are validating this fact that you can just spend money and you can reach a certain win threshold because last year the Philadelphia Phillies had one of the five highest payrolls in baseball. And granted, they were not the greatest team in the world last year. They were the, the last team to get in the playoffs in the National League. But the benefactor for them is that there were only four good teams in the National League. And so the Phillies got into the playoffs, beat the Atlanta Braves, and from there... They went on a run to the World Series because the Braves ended up falling apart in the playoffs against the Phillies, and then they got to play the Padres in the League Championship Series, and the Phillies were a better team because Bryce Harper had, and this is no joke, the greatest postseason in the history of the sport. Like, there's quantifiable evidence to back up the fact that the Phillies spent X amount of dollars, and it got them into the playoffs. They got an upset of the Atlanta Braves, and Bryce Harper from there had one of the greatest postseasons in the history of the sport. And the Phillies bought themselves a league championship series. When they were the poster child for a team that spends a lot of money, their, their owner John Middleton once called it stupid money. The team that spends stupid money got a league championship and 90 wins out of it. You can buy yourself 90 wins. The Yankees buy themselves 90 wins with the payroll that they've had over the years. Uh, last year, the Toronto Blue Jays did it too. The Blue Jays were top 10 in the league in payroll, and they got into the playoffs. And by the way, they got into the playoffs as the number four seed. You spend a certain amount of money, you will be able to get to the playoffs in this sport because there's just not enough players to go around and... The worst teams in the sport are all siphoning off players to other rosters. Uh, The Oakland A's are a team we talked about last week. Toronto got Matt Chapman. The Braves got Matt Olson. The Mets got Chris Bassett. The Padres got Sean Mania. Everyone just picked up. The Liam Hendricks went to the White Sox. Everyone just picked off pieces of the Oakland Athletics and are using that to sustain their franchise with a competitive advantage. And the Texas Rangers are the new team that got into this game of if we spend X amount of dollars, we can win X number of games. And going into the year, they spent... Or go, let's say going back to two years ago, the Texas Rangers had traded Joey Gallo, who was the best player on their team during a dull period in their franchise. They didn't make the playoffs for four consecutive years. Joey Gallo was the best player on their team. They traded him at the deadline and got... A uh, nice little package out of it at the end of it. They traded their number one starter, Lance Lynn, who I believe was the first pitcher to ever throw in that new stadium in Texas. And Lance Lynn and Joey Gallo and Mike Miner, players who represented the previous edition of the Texas Rangers, who ended up getting general manager John Daniels fired and Chris Woodward, the manager, got fired. That four-year run of the Texas Rangers building a new stadium, retooling the roster, that team got fired, and they were very strategic about the payroll. And then two years ago, they started blowing up their team. And by blowing up the team, I mean they traded those pieces we talked about before. Dane Dunning, who was the main prospect they got in the Lance Lynn trade, he came up to the majors, and 
what they did was they spent $180 million on Marcus Semien, who was uh, previously of the Oakland Athletics, went to Toronto, had a season where he finished top three in the MVP, and then signed with the Texas Rangers for seven years and $180 million. And then they gave World Series MVP Corey Seager a $300 million contract. And there's only about 10 to 11 teams in baseball that are even handing out $300 million contracts. It's the Mets, the Yankees, the Padres, the Phillies. The Phillies gave out two of them, by the way, one to Trey Turner and one to Bryce Harper. The Phillies, the Dodgers did it with Mookie Betts. The Braves did it. Uh, They didn't get to $300 million, but they were in the game for some $300 million players. They're... They've given out multiple $200 million contracts to uh, Matt Olson and uh, Austin Riley. The Angels did it with Mike Trout, and they would do it with Shohei Otani if Otani wanted to play for them still. The New York, the San Francisco Giants did it with Arson Judge and then with Correa, but that deal ended up falling through. There's only about 10 teams in baseball willing to hand out $300 million contracts, and the Texas Rangers were one of those teams. They gave a $300 million contract to Corey Seager. They gave $180 million to Marcus Semien. They gave $180 million to Jacob deGrom, which the next closest offer was a three-year deal worth $120. They went out and they said, F that. We're going to give them five years and $180 million. They just, when the Mets went to DeGrom trying to negotiate up with him, they couldn't get him on the line because the deal was already done with the Texas Rangers. The Texas Rangers weren't just going to pay Jacob DeGrom above his market value as a Hall of Fame pitcher. They were going to pay a guy who had not played a full season for the last three years and had arm problems because his game was dependent on velocity. They were going to pay him until he was 39 years old. Which, in practice, everyone knew was a terrible idea. They knew they should not have given Jacob deGrom the contract. We talked about it last year when they signed the deal at the beginning of the winter meetings. Of course this was going to be a bad contract, but Texas signed it to be a bad contract. They signed the Semien deal thinking it would be a bad contract in hindsight. And then... Texas fired manager Chris Woodward, who, again, in their previous incarnation of the team with uh, John Daniels as general manager, in their previous incarnation, they got the up-and-coming bench coach for the Los Angeles Dodgers. They were frugal about their decision-making. They they had Lance Lynn and Mike Miner as the bulk of their starting rotation. And then they decided, we're going to play the haves and have-not game of spending $500 million on a middle infield, being Corey Seager and Marcus Semien, shortstop and second baseman. We're going to spend $180 million on a number one starter who might not be able to stay healthy. And we're going to hire a Hall of Fame manager in Bruce Bochy, who had been retired for five seasons, and Lord knows how much money the Texas Rangers were paying Bruce Bochy to become the manager of that team. They decided to spend as much money as they could with revenue sharing dollars, with a brand new stadium that brought in cash during the pandemic, to hosting an all-star game in 2024. They decided, F this, we're going to play the haves and have not games. Instead of trying to be 
shrewd with our minor league system. Instead of trying to build up a prospect base, strategic signings, bringing back guys like Lance Lynn, who's, again, a very good pitcher, but not the kind of pitcher who is the number one on a playoff team. Instead of being shrewd with their payroll, instead of being strategic with their farm system guys, Texas decided that they were going to play the haves and have-not game in Major League Baseball by spending the money that the Phillies spent, by spending the money that the Blue Jays spent, by spending the money San Diego is throwing around like nobody's business in the resistance, and trying to get in that game with the Astros and the Dodgers and the Braves by outspending the Astros and the Braves They didn't quite outspend the Dodgers, but the Dodgers cut their payroll back significantly from 2022. And if the Rangers give it another year, they might end up spending more than the Los Angeles Dodgers. And remarkably, the results of paying $500 million for your middle infield, the results of signing Jacob deGrom to a $180 million contract at age 34, paying God knows how much money for Bruce Bochy to come out of retirement and manage your team through 50, no, sorry, through 60 games, which is about 40% of the baseball season through 40% of the season, the Texas Rangers not only have the best record in the AL West, better than the Astros, they have the best run differential in all of baseball. And run differential is a statistic most correlated to, yes, this team is really good, but how fluky are they? Are they blowing teams out? Are they winning a lot of one-score games? When they lose, are they getting blown out? How might they fare in a playoff scenario? The Texas Rangers have the best run differential in all of baseball and have scored the most runs of any team in Major League Baseball, including a 16-run game over the weekend against the Seattle Mariners. Texas is if not the number one team in baseball behind, I mean, the, the Tampa Bay Rays are probably the number one team in all of baseball, but they're one of the four good ones. And in the National League, there's only about, I want to say, three and a half good teams. We're talking about the Dodgers and the Braves and maybe the Milwaukee Brewers, maybe the Arizona Diamondbacks. Like there's because the Padres have been such a disappointment, because the Mets have been such a disappointment, because the Phillies have been such a disappointment. And again, one or one or two of those teams are going to have to make the playoffs because you got to send six. And the National League Central is crap. So five of those teams are going to have to make the playoffs between the Dodgers and Braves getting two of those spots. Someone's got to get the last three spots. The Dodgers and Braves. And I guess the Brewers and maybe the Diamondbacks are the only good teams in baseball. But the Diamondbacks are even fluky in and of themselves. The Texas Rangers are one of the five best in all of baseball. They might be one of the three best in all of baseball. And all of that money they spent to get in the game to try and compete with the Houston Astros, it actually worked. And it validates the fact that baseball is becoming a sport of the haves and have-nots. You're going to find stories like the Arizona Diamondbacks, who we talked about earlier. They have the 21st highest payroll in the sport. And by the way, they're willing to spend the money. 
It's not like Arizona is an ownership group that's not willing to spend a ton of money. Their thing is that they weren't willing to pay for Paul Goldschmidt and Zach Granke when the value said they were higher trading those guys. And by the way, kind of worked out. They got Jazz Chisholm in one of those trades. They then flipped Jazz Chisholm in exchange for Zach Gallen. Zach Gallen is their ace starting pitcher who might actually end up starting in the All-Star game. There's a real chance Zach Gallen might be the starting pitcher for the All-Star game in Arizona. They got an ace pitcher out of the Paul Goldschmidt trade. They flipped Zach Granke in exchange for two players who are now solid contributors, including Corbin Carroll, who's their three-hitter now on the team. The Diamondbacks are an example of a team that spends less money and can still compete. And you'll find those in there. Seattle's doing it. The Brewers are doing it. The teams at the bottom, like Tampa Bay is obviously Tampa Bay. They're just their own thing at this point. They're just remarkable in all the different ways. But Texas decided instead of trying to be smart, we're going to be rich. And if we spend X amount of dollars, we can get which in this case for Texas is two hundred million because their payroll's at one hundred ninety-eight million. If we spend one hundred ninety-eight million, if we spend two hundred million dollars, we can be as good as the Houston Astros. If we spend at top eight levels in the sport, we will be a top eight team, or at the very least, a top ten team. If things go poorly, the worst we'll do is just make the playoffs. And Texas decided, we'll spend the money, we'll invest the resources necessary to just get to the playoffs. They might not end up winning the division because they're only a game ahead of the Astros, but they're guaranteed to make the playoffs. And if they make the playoffs with that team and that payroll, they've got a puncher's chance because they score more runs than any other team in the sport. Episode 5, The Dodger Empire Strikes Back. After five days of battles, a perfect 13 innings from the bullpen fleet, and help from a rally goose, Captain Juan Soto and the San Diego Resistance blew up the Holy Dodger Empire's 111-win Death Star, restoring a balance to the Force. After their incredible victory, the Resistance discovers they still have much to learn after a journey to the Dagobah system and a visit to Master Harper on the swamp planet known as Philadelphia. Meanwhile, the Holy Dodger Empire grows in wealth, pillaging the backs of Diamond and Purple Rockies once more for resources. The Empire has removed Captains Trey and Justin Turner while banishing Cody Bellinger to the north side. Master Cohen and his Met Army of Queens continue spending their unprecedented resources in an attempt to maintain control of their Empire State along the eastern seaboard. In addition, Master Cohen and his Met Army of Queens, along with the Holy Dodger Empire, prepare themselves for the impending arrival of Master Otani, the fabled Jedi Knight from Anaheim who legend says has the ability to master and control both sides of the Force. Despite their successes, the Resistance is losing resources and ground trying to compete with the tyranny of the Holy Dodger Empire. They've fled to the backs of Diamond in order to re-coordinate their efforts for the following season. In their time of need, 
Captain Juan Soto enlists help from a former resistance ally, Fernando Calrissian, also known as El Nino. The resistance also pays a hefty price for Xander Bogart's defection from the once great Boston Empire. With the help of Captain Soto, the return of El Nino, Xander the Carpenter, Joe Musgrove, Jedi Master Manny Machado, and Supreme Closer Lord Hader, the Resistance knows this season will be their best chance to dismantle the Holy Dodger Empire once and for all. All right, so let's discuss the Detroit Pistons going out and giving Monty Williams the richest contract for any NBA head coach in the history of the sport. Isn't it great for labor when management doesn't collude? Isn't it wonderful to see Monty Williams get $13 million, which will then increase coaching salaries, which in turn will increase assistant coaching salaries? I mean, isn't it wonderful to see free market labor take place? And Tom Gores, who is a morally abhorrent owner of the Detroit Pistons, made a lot of his money on collect calls for private prisons, so made hundreds of millions of dollars off of the private prison system. Tom Gores, the owner of the Detroit Pistons, gave Monty Williams $13 million a year to coach the Detroit Pistons when Greg Popovich was making about $11.5 million to coach the Spurs. Steve Kerr was making about $9 million to coach the Warriors. Nick Nurse was making $8 million to coach the Toronto Raptors. And Tyron Lue, before he is about to get a gigantic contract extension from the Clippers, was making half, $6.5 million, compared to Monty Williams' now $13 million per year, six-year contract with the Detroit Pistons. And... We talked about the Pistons when we did our wonderful draft lottery episode and talked about how, yeah, it sucks that the Pistons didn't end up getting the top pick, but the good news for them is that they hit on the lottery a couple years ago and got Cade Cunningham, which unfortunately for them, getting Cade Cunningham in that year seems like it wasn't the best year to have the number one pick in the draft because it's not the weakest draft class of all time, but it's one of the weaker draft classes in 2021, it would appear. And maybe time will will look more fondly upon that draft class. But besides the point, Cade Cunningham was their number one pick. They got Jaden Ivey thir- uh, fifth overall last year. And they still have the number five pick going into this year's draft. And so they don't need the number five pick to turn into the next Victor Wembenyama or the next Ja Morant for them to have a good team next season. In fact, their starting lineup next year is probably going to look like Cade Cunningham... Boyan Bogdanovich, unless they trade Bogdanovich, then Jaden Ivey, Marvin Bagley, James Wiseman, and the fifth overall pick will slide in wherever the fifth overall pick slides in. And 
the Pistons are in a really interesting position where they gave Monty Williams that contract because what this basically comes down to is what we call in football the Jaguars tax. Like, remember when Christian Kirk got the fifth highest contract in the history of the NFL for a wide receiver at like 18 mil a year to go play for the Jaguars? And granted, he's now outside the top 10 in highest paid receivers, but at the time, Christian Kirk was one of the five highest paid wide receivers in the NFL. That's chalked up to the Jaguars tax because there's a premium in order to go play for a team like that. And in the case of Monty Williams, the Pistons had pursued him for weeks. They offered him $10 million a year, then $11 million a year. They came back to the table, and there was talks about it was a, about six years and $65 million for Monty Williams. And then they upped that to $78 million, and Monty Williams ends up becoming the head coach of the Pistons, a job that, based on his resume, he would be a little bit overqualified for. And we talked about this with Nick Nurse last week, where... Nick Nurse could have had his pick of any job he wanted in the NBA, and Nick Nurse chose the Philadelphia 76ers, which, compared to Phoenix or compared to Milwaukee, you know, we could have merits for both, but it was just kind of surprising that with any job he could have had, Nick Nurse chose the Philadelphia 76er job. And Monty Williams did not have that freedom or flexibility to pick his next job because he got fired by the Phoenix Suns. The Suns weren't about to rehire him. The 76ers chose Nick Nurse and the Milwaukee Bucks hired Adrian Griffin as their head coach. And Monty was looking like he was going to be sitting out a year as a head coach and then wait for another one of those prime head coaching positions to open up. But instead, Monty Williams got the richest contract for any coach and the security of a four- to five-year contract to coach the Detroit Pistons. And yes, the Pistons could fire him early and eat a bunch of the guaranteed money. Besides the point, though, Monty Williams gets the protection of a rebuilding team for a that he was more qualified for than the position was offering. Monty Williams gets that level of protection, and so I'm interested by him making that call to go to Detroit because you don't really see this ever with head coaches, like with players in the salary cap system. And it's particularly so in the NBA where there's a much more abundant middle class because they put caps on the salaries of the top end players, whether it's a max contract, a super max, there's different systems, but there is a cap so that the best players in the NBA only make about 40 to 50% of what they would be worth in a free and open market. And that doesn't quite exist in the same capacity in the NFL. If it were free and open market, NFL teams would probably get more. But for the most part, the best players, whether it's quarterbacks or Aaron Donald, they do end up getting these gigantic contracts that are large percentages of salary caps. And so in the NBA, you see the Jaguars tax come into play all the time. We laughed a couple years ago about how the NBA had the Charlotte Hornets spend 66% of their salary cap on, I think, a team where the best player was Terry Rozier. And the Sacramento Kings spent 65% of their salary cap on Corey Joseph Rashawn Holmes, there are Kent Bazemore, 
Like, it was just funny how the middle class... There was a Jaguars tax that was being paid to go play for Charlotte or to go play for the Sacramento Kings four years ago. And uh, a couple years ago, the Pistons were the team that did this. The Pistons signed Kelly Olynyk to a $36 million contract. They signed Bogdan... Uh, not Bogdanovich. They signed... Jeremy Grant to a $20 million a year contract. Like they, oh, they signed Mason Plumley for $40 million a year. Like the, a couple of years ago, it was the Pistons who were paying the Jaguars tax on free agents. But you don't usually see that with coaches in the NBA. And I feel like part of that is there isn't really a coach in the NBA worthy of being the one who jumps ship to go to another organization at a gigantic salary. And maybe that's because the NBA coaches are disposable nowadays. Or I I shouldn't say disposable. NBA coaches are more interchangeable now than they were years and years ago. But you just don't usually see a coach join a rebuilding organization with a reputation of Monty Williams. And when I say reputation of Monty Williams, we're talking about coach who has won a Coach of the Year award a coach of the bubble award, which is, I think is unique, but we should point out that like Monty Williams got the best coach in the bubble award because the Suns went eight. zero in that stretch and they didn't give the MVP of the bubble to Devin Booker because Damian Lillard was balling the fuck out. But you've got a coach of the year acknowledged and coach of the bubble award also being one. You have a coach who came within two games of winning an NBA championship two years ago and had the number one seed one year ago. And this year's team, you know, you could talk about they were bounced in the second round and lost in six games to the Nuggets, but I think hindsight kind of shows us they were the second best team in the Western Conference this year. And Monty Williams, at the very least, wasn't the person who was running that thing off a cliff. And when I talk about coaches being more interchangeable than they've ever been before... There was a legitimate conversation at the end of this season with the Phoenix Suns that the DeAndre Ayton, Monty Williams pairing was going to have to split up. And there was a legitimate conversation about whether or not you keep Ayton and move on from Monty Williams. Again, a coach of the year plus coach of the bubble and one of maybe the 50 best players in the NBA. There was a conversation to be had about, well, if you can only keep one between Monty Williams and DeAndre Ayton, which one do you choose? And I've I heard a lot of people who are making the argument for keeping DeAndre Ayton. If put if it's one has to leave, one has to stay. There were people talking about DeAndre Ayton. And if we're talking about this for DeAndre Ayton, imagine if we're talking about this with Devin Booker. Like DeAndre Ayton is not even one of the all-stars. He's not even a fringe all-star in the NBA right now. So if the conversation is we'd rather keep DeAndre Ayton than Monty Williams, then man, these coaches are pretty interchangeable because that means 50 players in the NBA are more valuable than one of the five, than a coach of the year. Like that means there are 50 players in the NBA are worth more to their franchises than a coach of the year. At that point, the coach of the year is pretty interchangeable and again, this is just not the case in other sports where Bill Belichick was set to trade Rob Gronkowski to the Lions. Rob Gronkowski flexed his power and stayed in New England, but it didn't mean that that was the end of Bill Belichick. It just meant Bill Belichick didn't have the power to trade Rob Gronkowski. And that doesn't exist in the NBA because, again, 
if it came down to we keep our coach or we keep DeAndre Ayton, they probably would have chosen DeAndre Ayton. And obviously Monty did end up getting fired. So in a way, they did kind of pick DeAndre Ayton. Now, it's not guaranteed that Ayton's going to be on the team anymore. So I don't want to like frame it as like they chose Ayton over Monty because there's a pretty real chance Ayton isn't back next year either for the Phoenix Suns. At the same time, if that's the case, then you just don't see a coach who's worth it to an organization like the Detroit Pistons, so much so that they would pay a premium for that top-of-the-line coach. I think it was a perfect confluence of circumstance and situation that led to a really unique coaching hire. It was really unique that Monty Williams got $13 million a year, which again is double what the fifth highest paid coach in the NBA is making right now. That won't be the case forever. It is the case right now, though. And I think it's really, really interesting that a perfect confluence of events led to the guy who Phoenix said wasn't worth it as a head coach. And by the way, Phoenix went and hired Frank fucking Vogel as their head coach. I don't know what the hell they were doing with that. They just needed anyone other than Monty Williams to become their head coach. And they chose Frank Vogel. They chose Frank Vogel as their next head coach, which is ridiculous. Ridiculous that you would retread Frank Vogel for that team when you had Monty Williams as your head coach. And maybe it was just a personality conflict. But the one thing that Monty Williams had going for him is that Chris Paul was his guy. And Devin Booker seemed to be cool with him. And Kevin Durant had just showed up, so maybe there would have been some tension there. But he hadn't done anything to make Kevin Durant not like him. And... I can't believe that they end up choosing Frank Vogel over Monty Williams. And Monty Williams, that perfect confluence of events leading to him joining the Detroit Pistons for $13 million a year with a team that's not going to make the playoffs next year, a team that might make the play-in in 2025, like a team that is years and years away signed up for Monty Williams. And again, it's not like this is unique in other circumstances. Football players get the Jaguar tax all the time, so much so we call it the Jaguar tax. Teams will pay premiums for free agents in the NBA. It's going to happen this offseason. One of these tanking teams or rebuilding teams with a bunch of cap space is going to spend a bunch of money on mid-tier free agents. Hell, we're already seeing rumors that Austin Reeves could get $100 million from the San Antonio Spurs or the Orlando Magic, one of these teams that's been tanking for years that now has financial flexibility and doesn't have the means to acquire a star other than signing a guy that another team doesn't want or doesn't want to pay mid-level player money. Like I said, Detroit a couple years ago did this when they signed Kelly Olynyk and Jeremy Grant and Mason Plumley all in one offseason, and I think now all of them are no longer on the Pistons, but that's besides the point. It's the best the Pistons could do, and they had to pay a premium for mid-level free agents. And in this case, the Pistons paid a premium for a top-end coach. Monty Williams is what I'd regard as one of the five to seven really good coaches in the NBA. Granted, he won a Coach of the Year just a couple years ago and won... Uh, coach of the bubble three years ago. So he's been honored at the end of a season. I put season in air quotes twice in his five years as the head coach of the Phoenix Suns. And 
the Pistons paid a premium for a top five to seven coach, and that premium is the richest contract for any head coach in the NBA. And I'm interested to see if this becomes a trend or if, say, the next coach to sign an extension, whether it's Teron Liu with the Clippers or whether it's, I mean, not Darvin Ham with the Lakers. I guess even, I mean, Nurse signed his contract before Monty Williams. Hell, let's call it Frank Vogel, who just signed with the with the Phoenix Suns. If Frank Vogel's contract is going to look different because of the deal Monty Williams just signed, or if the coaching salaries are going to remain relatively stagnant outside of the albatross of Monty Williams. And again, it would be the first option if there wasn't collusion within the ownership group. Because if Monty Williams is worth $13 million, what do you think Steve Kerr is going to be worth when his contract comes up with the Warriors? Or I don't know if Steve Kerr is going to continue coaching, but if he signs an extension with the Warriors, what is that contract going to look like? What is Ty Lue's extension going to look like with the Clippers? That'll be really interesting to follow as we navigate our way through the next couple months of coaching salaries, because this could redefine the market. If we're talking about a free and open market without collusion, Monty Williams extension could be changing some of the finances of the sport at a position, which is NBA head coach, where they're pretty interchangeable and they're so interchangeable that the coach who's now the highest paid guy in all of NBA history, making $13 million was someone that a lot of people would have gotten rid of in exchange for the fourth best player on the Phoenix Suns being satisfied. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We've got episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, as well as Wired Up on Sundays, occasionally. Maybe not this week. Leave a five-star review, a download, any and all support is greatly, greatly appreciated, and we appreciate all of you who continue to support this show and support all of our dreams, whether it's sports radio, supporting our book, any and all is greatly appreciated, and thank you so much for continuing to support our dreams. We'll talk to you tomorrow. We've got Game 3 NBA Finals post-game tomorrow on the show, and until then, take it easy. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.